Board Gaming with Education, a podcast for anyone curious about how games and education mix. We explore various topics like game-based learning, gamification, and board games, and the impacts they have on learning. Here's your host, Dustin Stats. All right, so I am joined today with Dave Eng from University XP, and we're going to talk about, well, actually, we're going to listen to a conversation I had with Brian McDonald from Brains on Games about theme-based games versus abstract games for learning. Dave, would you mind introducing yourself a little bit before I share more about the topic and our guest, Brian? Sure, and thanks for having me on, Dustin. Uh, Again, my name is Dave Eng from University XP, where I write about games, gamification, and games-based learning. Awesome. And I'm excited to have you back. Uh, I think this is maybe your fourth visit to the podcast mm-hmm. <laughs> and hopefully a couple more. We're talking about theme-based games versus abstract games for learning. And I talk with Brian McDonald, who is the, I guess, host of Brains on Games. It's a YouTube channel. And he's also a psychologist who loves board games. He practice, His practice focuses on supporting students with learning problems. And he talks about how games can help develop certain skills for students. Um, he has a lot of experience in education as a psychologist. So I'm super excited to chat with him about this topic. So in the episode, Brian does talk about some games that he uses, and we explore some ideas of abstract games for learning and theme-based games for learning. Before we get into today's conversation, let's hear from our sponsor. This episode of Board Gaming with Education is sponsored by The World Game, a fun and educational geography board game exciting and fast playing game for everyone it is on kickstarter right now i highly recommend checking it out i know i will be backing it because it makes for a great fun educational game that everyone can play as well as an amazing classroom resource as you explore the different cities countries flags you're doing it on this really cool colorful board that comes with the entire world map again it's on kickstarter so you're gonna have to go on to kickstarter check it out for yourself The link will be in the show notes. And again, that's the world game on Kickstarter. All right. And so today I am with Dr. Brian McDonald from Brains on Games. He is a psychologist and we are talking about abstract games versus theme-based games for learning. So we're going to get into what that means and define those terms in just a minute. But Brian, would you mind introducing yourself? Sure. Uh, Well, like you said, I'm Brian McDonald. I'm a Canadian psychologist and my work focuses primarily on supporting kids with learning difficulties at school. So uh, way back in the day, I was a, a professor who was teaching um, PhD candidates how to do psychoeducational assessments, they're called. Uh, and then I've, I've worked in, well, I worked in a school board for 15 years doing testing and therapy. Uh, and now I am in private practice and Brains on Game started when the the pandemic forced me to close everything down. So I was sort of sitting at home, you know, hanging out with family and stuff, but but um, feeling like, oh, I should be working, I should be working, but I couldn't work. There was nothing I could do. So I'd sort of had this idea in the back of my mind for a long time because I've recommended games to parents forever and ever and ever uh, to help their kids practice the skills that might be lacking or, or that might be obstacles for them in the classroom. Um, you know, I prefer games over drills and it's nice when parents and kids can do something together. Uh, and so it, it had, the idea had sort of been percolating in my mind for a while. Uh, and then once I suddenly had a whole lot of time on my hands, I started Brains on Games. So now it's a YouTube channel and a Facebook page and we're sort of all over the place. Right. Yeah. And I love the channel and I love, I love the focus too. I think that is definitely a student population that needs more people serving that population. Oh, thanks so much. Like, you know, there's so many people who talk about board games on the internet, right? And so I thought, well, what can I offer that, that other people maybe um, wouldn't be able to? Uh, what, what's a unique thing that I could do? And because I've been school psychologist, I guess, for years and years, this was my niche. Right. And I think it's, yeah, it's super important to make learning as accessible as possible too, right? And I think games games can do that for some students. 
Definitely. You know, one of the things I think about, well, look, the relationships are one of the most important things mm-hmm. and, and finding ways for parents or for teachers too, to play with the kids in their class or to play with their kids at home that where, where you don't have to invent it. You don't have to be too creative about it. You, there's not, you know, watching a video about the rules or reading a rule book is, is sort of the, the buy-in that you need, the t- whatever time it takes to set up a game. Uh, if they've got a bunch of things like that on the shelf, it certainly makes life easier. Uh, and um, board games are so social, and that's something I think that's that's important for uh, for kids too. You know, learning about turn taking and learning about uh, one of the biggest things about games. I think, and this was true of my kids early on. You know, young kids are so all or nothing. They have big feelings about things. Uh, and it's hard for them to cope with things like losing a game or not being the best or not being in first place. So it's it's nice when they're with the supportive grown up who can kind of help them work through that stuff. So as a therapist, I'm I'm sort of on the emotional side of the games as well as practicing those different abilities that the kids might be lacking. And honestly, I mean, if you're playing instead of doing drills, there's so much less less stressful. There's yeah, there's there's no consequences. Uh, there's an opportunity for growth there that I, I don't think you have from doing worksheets necessarily. Right. And I mean, that's something we'll talk about more too is for language learning. And this doesn't just apply to language learning. It applies to different content areas, but games allow language learners that safe environment to make mistakes and not feel that pressure of being maybe embarrassed, um, especially where, or I taught in Asia, that was a very big thing is like to get in front of your class and, you know, speak and you're worried about making mistakes and having a game, you kind of have that, that less risk involved to do it. Totally. And I mean, the research now is showing that play is huge for development of all kinds of, not just skills, but just your own the maturity and resilience and, uh, you, you know, uh, being able to play games like this. And, and it's such a renaissance of board games. I mean, the, the shelf behind me is filled with a hundred games of any theme you can imagine you can play a game about. Any mechanic you can think of, you can play a game about it. So uh, it's perfect timing. We live in a golden age right. when it comes to board games, I think. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's true. You can really play a board game about anything too. So, I mean, yeah. I'm just thinking of one that I've been playing is Food Chain Magnet. I don't know if you played that, but uh, you're you're running a restaurant. I mean, that's something pretty bland, but the game's pretty fun because it's very strategic. Sure, and I mean, you've got something like Patchwork where you're mm, making, yeah. you know, you can think of a game about just just about anything. It's not all you know spaceships or or uh, or war, you know, war games. Right. Right. All right, so let's get into the topic is um, we're looking at the difference between abstract games for learning and theme-based games for learning. And let's first define, so anyone that's maybe just tuning in or is not familiar with games for learning, game-based learning, let's define that. Um, So game-based learning is where a player or learner is learning through play, through the inherent process of playing the game. Um, so it's not something that I talk about a lot is gamification versus game-based learning. Gamification is maybe earning points for doing something. Um, that's You're not really learning through what you're doing. Um, the points are added on. So we're going to look at abstract games and theme-based games for learning. So learning through the process of playing an abstract game or learning through the process of playing a theme-based game. And I'm going to go to you for maybe your definition of each of those. What is an abstract game? How would we define that? Boy, uh, you probably find in the comments that people are going to disagree because I, I don't think there's a firm, firm definition. And, and one person will say, this is an abstract game. And another would say, well, maybe it's not so much. I mean, the, the key with an abstract game is that the theme of the game isn't important. Maybe it's non-existent. It, you might just be looking at stones on a board, uh, like a game of Go. Mm-hmm. Um, a game of, of chess is also considered to be an abstract game because even though there's sort of a military medieval kind of war theme, uh, but that theme isn't important. You're just moving pieces around on a board. I, I think a, 
a really important part, and this is where there might be some debate when you're talking about an abstract game, is that you know, luck, the element of chance is minimized as much as possible. Abstract games, by definition, don't use dice or cards where things might be random. There's nothing really that's hidden in a pure abstract game. So everyone has all of the same information, everything's visible, and and it doesn't leave anything to chance. And so what happens with those pure kinds of abstract games is that every turn, you know, you're moving a piece on the board, but you're creating a puzzle for the other player to solve. Uh, And that's what I think is, I love these kinds of games, honestly. And, and, And my son is really good at them. And I would say, but you know, I went to university for a lot of years, but I was focused on verbal skills, not these kind of abstract moving stones on a board. And he thinks multiple moves ahead. And that's just the way his brain works. And I just think it's perfect. I love playing with him. I love when he beats me because he's so good. So I like the key is that there's everyone has all of the information. There's nothing that's random. And it's just a game that's based purely on each player's skill. I think that's a really good definition. And I learned a couple things because abstract games, I, I, my definition in my head was just something that didn't really have a theme to it. And it was uh, strategic. I didn't realize that it was purely just purely strategic, which is something I just learned. And that's really yeah. Cool. Well, and I, I mean, I think that's where some people might vary, right? Because I mm, okay. personally, I think of games like, um, well, a game that I talked about recently on Brains on Games was Project L, which is a game that you're just putting little chips into a puzzle and you're building puzzles. However, that wouldn't be considered a pure abstract game because there's like a marketplace and the puzzles come up randomly and you never know what you're going to get. It's abstract, but maybe not purely abstract. The Duke is another good example. I don't know if you've ever played The Duke. Uh, I don't think so, no. Okay, so The Duke is a game where it's a lot like chess. It's a two-player game. You've got a grid, and there's pieces that you're you're moving around. There are little wooden squares. The pieces have different movements that they can do. What I like about The Duke compared to chess is that the movements are printed on the tiles themselves, so you don't have to have memorized that a knight moves this way or that way. But what's tricky about it is that when you move one of those tiles, it flips over and it moves in a different way. Oh, wow. So, so every second turn, your piece has a different power, but it wouldn't be considered a purely abstract game because you have a choice of either moving one of your pieces on the board or recruiting a piece. And the way that you recruit is to draw a tile from a bag. And that's where the randomness comes in. So you right. don't even know what you're going to get. I like that because it kind of eliminates the memorization part of those opening moves. Like in chess, you might have a preferred opening strategy that you're going to do every time. But with the Duke, it's harder to do that because you don't know what piece you're going to recruit. So that's one that to me would be an abstract game, but it's not purely abstract because you have the randomness of reaching into a bag and recruiting a a tile. Right, right. That's, yeah, I think that's important to kind of look at those two I guess that distinction and that some games can be almost purely abstract, but still maybe fall into that category of abstract games. How about theme-based games? Well, theme-based games have more of a story to them, right? Or, or some, you know, the artwork has something important to do with the game and the mechanics of the game, hopefully, I mean, in the best theme-based games, the mechanics make sense based on the theme that you're following. You know, one of my favorite, I think, theme-based games would be a game like Dinosaur Island, where it's you're sort of building a Jurassic Park, um, and it's a worker placement and, and engine building kind of a game. But some of the things that you're doing is you're, you're researching, you're trying to gather DNA to create these recipes to put dinosaurs into your park. And the way that you do that is you roll these dice. Now it's perfectly themed. The dice are, they look like amber. They're like translucent yellow dice. Uh, And I tell everyone I play with, I back Dinosaur Island on Kickstarter. I was like one of the first people I saw this Jurassic Park style game and, and they were looking for suggestions. And I said, those, the DNA, the DNA should be in Amber. There needs to be an Amber thing thing here somewhere. So I always take credit myself. (laughs) 
coming up with the idea of creating those DNA dice, but everything is married to that theme. You've got little dinosaur meeples that you're putting into your park and then guests come to visit and you're placing them around. But if your security rating isn't high enough, a dinosaur is going to escape and eat, eat some of your guests. So it's, it's really everything is tied together around that theme of DNA and dinosaurs, very much like a Jurassic Park kind of a game. So different from chess, right? Where there's not really a story that you're telling. Right. But with Dinosaur Island, you definitely have that. Right. And I think it's important to kind of think about too, and we'll probably talk about this in the discussion, is how theme games can really tie those mechanics into the theme. Like you had mentioned, the security having an actual thing you need to do in the game that affects the story or the narrative of the game too. Yeah, yeah there's, so, there's often lots of things to balance in those games with the theme, whereas in, uh, in, in the more abstract games, you're, you're just looking at the layout of pieces on a board and you're solving that puzzle. Whereas if you're playing a game like Coimbra, for example, you're recruiting dice. Uh, there's four different, I think, four different kinds of dice that you have to choose from. The number on the die determines how much you're going to pay for the thing that you want to do. The color of the die determines which track you're going to move along in terms of your influence in the city. Um, there's a lot of things to juggle. And the theme-based games, I would say, usually are heavier on the working memory side, that whiteboard in your mind where you have to keep information so that you can juggle things around. There's, there tends to be, I think anyway, more multitasking in a game that has, that has a theme like that. Often there are lots of things going on. I mean, even in Prime Climb, which is a math game, uh, and it looks sort of abstract, but definitely it's the, the theme is math and you're rolling dice and you're doing these different calculations. You're moving two pawns uh, around a spiral, but then you have to decide based on the numbers you roll, are you going to add, subtract, or multiply, or divide to move those pawns around? And are you, are you more focused on moving forward or knocking other players' pieces back? That's, that's interesting. Um, I kind of want to come back to that because I wouldn't think of a math game as a, as a theme-based game which is, I mean, it is, right? The theme is math. <laughs> well, yeah, it's, it's all about calculations for that prime climb, and it looks abstract on the board. However, I mean, you have that randomness too, right, of rolling right. dice. Cool. Um, one thing you did say too, which is, I think, important, is about tying those mechanics into the theme is there's more buy-in from the players too, which is important for games for learning, especially because... If you have that buy-in, you have their attention. If you have their attention, you have the ability to give them knowledge to help them yeah. learn. <laughs> the abstract games tend, tend not to be in the cool area of the board game store. <laughs> they're often sort of relegated to the back somewhere. You have to search them out sometimes because they're not as cool as the other ones or exciting in terms of their theme. You know, you're not racing cars around like Formula D or flying spaceships like tiny epic galaxies. Right, right. And I, another thing you said about, this was early on, we were talking about just games in general and how games help creativity. And I think with theme-based games, you kind of have that base layer of the narration. And then as a player, you can kind of add your own element of creativity into the game. I don't know if, I mean, you probably play games with people in there you know, imitating the characters in the game in a voice, right? They're yeah. creating extra stories based around the game. So I think that that theme really helps develop creativity in players that are playing too. Oh, I love it when you can tell a story uh, about about a game that you played, right? Uh, where you're, um, I mean... When I was in high school, you know, I cut my teeth on those role-playing games. I played all of those things, mm. Dungeons and Dragons and, and Paranoia and, I mean, you name it. If there was a role-playing game, I played it. And that's all about storytelling. Somebody said to me a long time ago that, you know, games like that, role-playing games, storytelling games are, you know, a haven for frustrated writers and actors <laughs> Uh, because that's what you're doing. You're, you're writing it. You're creating a story as you go and you're, um, you're acting out as your character. And that is, I mean, it's fun, but definitely you're exercising that creative muscle. 
Right, right. So those are, I mean, those are a couple things that theme-based games can do that maybe abstract games cannot do. Are there any things that abstract games are good for that a theme-based game is maybe not able to do? What do you think? Well, when you look at those, the, the pure abstract games, when we're talking about no luck being involved, I mean, they do tend to be more um, more visual than verbal, I would say, because usually the, the verbal games, they might be abstract, but they often have some sort of a theme that's, that's linking them together. Um, and there are, you know, there's hidden things in those verbal games. Usually you're trying to guess a word or, or you know, uh, there's randomness in choosing a letter for, for a game like Scrabble. But with the um, purely abstract games, A, because there's no chance, I think that sort of promotes that growth mindset because you're the only one who's responsible for the outcome of the game. Those two players are going to determine what happens. It's purely based on your ability. Uh, so that kind of promotes that idea of, well, I'm responsible for what happens in this game. You can't blame anyone else. It's not the dice. I mean, dice hate me. If there was, if I had a t-shirt that said dice hate me, my, you know, my kids would nod and say, yeah, that is absolutely true. You're not good at dice games, dad. So you get that, you know, that's that sense of personal responsibility, but also because there's no theme to kind of distract you from the puzzle. It, the, those games tend to be really good exercises in fluid reasoning or flexible problem solving. Uh, and if you talk to folks who design IQ tests and who do um, learning assessments, one of the most important skills that kids can have that they can develop the most important score on the IQ test is the measure of fluid reasoning, because that's all about when you're faced with a new kind of problem and you don't have all of the necessary information to solve it. How do you tackle that? Can you generate a solution based on incomplete information or based on, you know, something new that you've never seen before? Um, what a great skill to be able to develop, you know, and without all of the extra trappings of a, of a theme, you're, you're just purely exercising that ability. Now, it could be a different skill. Like, I mean, Jenga, I would say, is an abstract game. You know, mm -hmm. there's no deep strategy <laughs> <laughs> There's no deep strategy, but you're just building this tower and you're trying not to knock it over. But that's a, that's a purely visual motor game uh, where you're just sort of being very careful and you need to have a steady hand in order to make sure that you don't knock everything down. So I think it, it kind of takes away all of the distractions and you're working that particular skill. Often the abstract games are good exercises for kids who are uh, working on math or science problems, right? Because those are the ones where fluid reasoning is absolutely essential. Maybe, could you maybe give an example of when someone might use fluid reasoning for, I don't know, just like a day-to-day -day thing, either as an adult or as a student? Well, you know, <laughs> when you think about students who are even solving word problems in math, you've got the reading part, of course, but you don't have all the information. And usually the problems are presented in a slightly different way each time. So you're using your verbal reasoning skills, of course, if it's a word problem, but then you have to figure out how to generate a solution for that. One of the things that we do to, to measure fluid reasoning is we, we have shapes that are arranged in a certain way. And from that, that organization of shapes, you have to figure out the rule that will allow you to choose the right answer for each of these multiple choice questions. So it could be, you know, if you're telling a kid who hasn't memorized the strategy for how to do it, okay, well, what's the best deal on, um, you know, printer ink at the, at the office supply store? How are they going to figure that out? You know, any of those exercises where they're, they're working with incomplete information and they don't have a set step-by-step -step strategy, that's going to involve some, some of those flexible problem solving or fluid reasoning skills. When, you, when you're following a step-by-step -step process and you run into an obstacle, you know, what happens if, <laughs> if uh, something doesn't go the way that you expect it to? You know, you're building something, even in art class, you're building something in art class and it's not hanging together. Well, then what do you do, right? That becomes a fluid reasoning activity at that point. Yeah, those are really good examples. And then as far as, I guess, I'm trying to think because for me, the games I have used, and again, probably mainly because my background is in English language, 
have been theme-based games. I don't think an abstract game would be conducive to language learning, like playing chess, you know, maybe if you like have to uh, say a sentence every time you make a move, but then that turns into more of a gamification thing than a game-based learning thing. Do you have any examples of like, whether it's content specific or the learning outcomes are tied to abstract games? Wow. You know, I've, I tried to think of abstract games that, you know, purely abstract games that are more, uh, that are more verbal um, and it was a, it was a tough challenge, <laughs> right? Yeah. Right. Like I think about maybe the closest thing might be something like that old game diplomacy mm. where, yeah, I mean, there's a theme and it's tied to the theme, but there's no chance involved. Everybody, the only thing that's secret from everyone else are, are your negotiations. Right. So there's a lot of social, I don't know if you've ever played diplomacy before, but there's a lot of social interactions because there's no chance you have to make deals with other players in order for anything to happen. So, so there is some hidden stuff, but there's no luck involved and it's a lot of, of back and forth verbally. So that sort of came into my mind as being an example, but there's so much chance in those games. Like one that I'm really excited to try. It hasn't arrived yet, but I've got it on order is a game called Letter Tycoon, which involves a few different things. It's a little bit like Bananagrams or Scrabble where you're spelling words, but you can get a patent on a letter so that you earn points when other people use the letters that you have a patent on. So it adds, you know, some there's some math and planning and strategy involved. Uh, as opposed to just having a great vocabulary and being a great speller, it just adds some extra wrinkles. But it's still not a purely abstract game. So I'm really at a loss. And maybe that's partly because I play so many games that are more visual than verbal. You know, I've got trap words on the shelf and I've got code names on the shelf, but but I don't play a lot of those, uh, those more verbal interactive, other than the storytelling games. Right. Yeah, I'm trying to think. I'm probably fall into the same category as you as where I would probably choose a theme-based game over an abstract game. I do like some abstract games, but again, I'm thinking of one and it's from a Taiwanese publisher called Soloween. And it's about like, it's very um, kind of lighthearted, but the, the theme is harvesting souls, but it like the art's very like cute art. So it's, it sounds like intense, but it's very much like a combination of tic-tac-toe, chess, and checkers, I would say, mm-hmm. um, where you choose a player and that player has specific ability and then the other person has a different player with different specific ability and you're playing on a like a three-by-three three grid. But again, I don't, that wouldn't fall into any learning outcomes. Yeah, I don't know. I don't, I'm struggling also to think of an abstract game. I mean, you could go to those soft skills, right? Maybe like you had mentioned, the fluid reasoning could be what you're trying to develop, the skill you're trying to develop through abstract games. But that's a little bit harder thing to measure, right? Yeah, things like turn-taking, I guess. The social dynamics of game playing uh, are, are, uh, you know, those pop up during those abstract games. But I do, I, I mean, I love those games. I do have an awful lot of theme games. And those tend to be the ones where there's lots of drama involved, where you do have a story to tell at the end. Um, you know, a good example, I'm, <laughs> there's, there's this K2 game behind me is a mountain climbing theme game that's about hand management and resource management. And the same thing happens to me every time I play that game. I take wild chances towards the end. And always something crazy happens and all my mountaineers die. But that's always the story that we tell afterwards. Like, oh, I was being really careful and I had my tent built over here. And, and then dad came racing by and his mountaineers got caught in a storm. And <laughs> that's how I won the game. So there's, they'll always go up and tell their mom about, you know, this is what happened. Same thing with Formula D. I don't know if you've ever played that one. Formula D is a racing car game. It's very thematic. You, you choose dice that have different numbers on them that will allow you to go further or, or roll lower numbers because you need to go slowly through turns on the track in Formula D. Uh, and the way you choose your, di- your dice is using a little gear shift 
that you have in front of you. So you move the gear and that's how you choose the larger dice. If you're in a higher gear, you're going to go further. But I always, you know, I'm trying to catch up to the, I'm careful all at the beginning. And then it's like all in, I'm going to roll the highest dice and I need this exact number else I'm going to lose the game. So, you know, nine times out of 10, my car explodes or my mountaineers <laughs> all die. But that one time, Right, right. It's worth it. There's some some dramatic thing. And I'm playing with my kids. So it's, you know, they have a funny story to tell about how their dad screwed everything up. Uh, But yeah, I mean, those those are more, you know, I play those games for fun. But when you think about a game like uh, Formula D is a good one, because probability you know, mm-hmm. you're looking yeah. at dice that have different numbers. You're thinking about, okay, well, what, what do I need to roll? You're constantly counting and calculating how many times you need to slow down around those turns and whether you have enough resources to, you know, are my tires going to blow up if I do this? Will I lose my last point on my brakes if I do this? Uh, so there's some resource management and lots of probability uh, and just numeracy skills in terms of magnitude. And it's racing cars, you know? Right. So yeah. That thing, it's that like racing fun. cars. Yeah. One one thing that kind of popped into my mind as far as targeting learning outcomes for with abstract games would be game development, right? I mean, that's very specific to what we're talking about, but you could look at game states within abstract games and help students learn what, I don't know, how things within a game affect the game state based on small additions to the rules. I'm not a game design teacher, so it's hard for me to kind of really think about some of the learning outcomes there, but I would imagine that could be something that you could target with abstract games. Well, and with the abstract games, they're right, they're pared down. So you're not as worried about the art. You're not as worried about all the different resources and pieces that you might, that you might have. So um, I would, I would think those would be the kind of games that you target at least at the beginning of a game development course right yeah um you you might look at probability you might look at uh sort of planning ahead if if planning is something that matters right like i said my son will think three or four or five moves ahead and he traps me in those games you know i always tell him i I went to grade 23 and how are you (laughs) how are you able to defeat me in these games we had a great experience with Go. Now, Go is is as abstract as you could possibly get. You're yeah. just laying stones on a grid and you're trying to surround the other player's pieces. And when I was in high school, I was interested in that game and I learned how to play from a book, but nobody else in the small town where I was from knew about Go. So I never really was able to get into it. I couldn't really explain it to someone else and show them how to play because I wasn't a skilled player. I went with my son to a board game cafe when those first started to open up, there was a little board game cafe and we went in and there was a gentleman there who was one of those internationally ranked players of go. They were, he was playing a game of go with the, with the waiter in the, in the restaurant. And he saw my son Riley come in. I mean, Riley might've been seven or eight years old at the time. And, and he said, Hey, come on over. I'll teach you how to play this game. That gentleman travels around high schools and intermediate schools in the area and teaches math in math classes teaches kids how to play go okay right yeah. as a as a, a again as that purely abstract fluid reasoning right. problem solving spatial management kind of a, a game yeah geometry is an area where i think right you're working with those shapes and like a game like project l is purely visual analysis and geometry you're working with those what do they call them? Polyominoes, those little mm. tile pieces that look like Tetris pieces. Maybe that's an area where right. you're doing some rotation or or a game like um, Control. Have you tried, have you played Control yet? From I haven't, no. So Control is a game where you start just with this black cube and you're adding these these little bricks to them. They sort of look like those tens and ones blocks that, that, that you use as manipulatives in math class. So you're adding three of these pieces at a time and you can, you can cover up your opponent's pieces with yours. And the object of the game is to have the most pieces visible at the end on each side. So you're counting up how many of each color you can see on, not on the bottom, but on the five other sides of this cube. So, I mean, here you're thinking about, you know, 3d visualization and, and, um, 
it really, it really is such a three-dimensional problem-solving kind of a game. Again, that would be more of a geometry, I would think, a geometry objective than anything right. else. Yeah. I mean, now that we've been talking about it more, this might be a good approach for a future topic is I'm sure there's loads of math learning outcomes from abstract games like graphing, maybe graphing different points in the game. Um, like you had mentioned Go, I'm sure. I'm Again, math is like way over here. I love like numbers, but anything that is more abstract, like algebra or math or uh, looking at formulas, that's tough for me. <laughs> but yeah, I'm sure there are some there are some learning outcomes with abstract games for math too. Yeah, I, I mean, I think math or maybe even science would be the two areas where you would you would find it the most. I mean, it's logic, right? So you you'd be looking at a lot of logical kind of problem solving and puzzle solving. Right, right. Awesome. So before we head into, we're going to finish this conversation with a game, and I told you we're going to play one game. We're, we're actually going to try something different <laughs> that I had thought about that I've played before, and I think it might be fun to do. Um, but do you have anything else maybe to add before we go into that? Well, only maybe only to say that um, with those theme-based games, because we've talked a lot about the abstract ones, but with those theme-based games, yeah, there are lots of specific kinds of objectives that that you can pull from those. History is a great one. You think about Brass Birmingham. Oh, Brass. is the latest one that I'm trying to learn how to play. And it's all about the Industrial Revolution in England. And But the, the manual itself has biographies of these industrialists from that time period uh, and little historical facts about the reason why the mechanics work that way. The manual's been sitting on my table forever. I've read it. But trying to get the kids to sit down for a couple of hours to play a really deep game yeah, is a bit it more is, challenging. It is a heavier game. I mm-hmm. I liked it. I didn't like it as much as others did, but I think it was it was good. And I'm gonna ask Brian to stick around because we're gonna play a game at the end of this episode with Brian and Dave. But let's bring Dave back on. All right, so we're back. We're going to talk about what Brian and I talked about. Dave, what what were some of the main things that you took away or some ideas that you were really excited about that you heard Brian share? So one of the things, Dustin, was Brian was talking about abstract games. And I think when we address what we're talking about with abstract games is games where there is no theme or the theme is not that important to gameplay. So some of the big classics out there are like chess, checkers, go, where there are merely like components to the game where you're playing, but there's no real evident theme in there. But there are some modern applications of abstract games as well, and one of them being something like Jenga, because Brian talked about um, motor visual skills with some of the students that he works with, and Jenga is one of those games. There's no real theme to think of, but Jenga does require some, you know, a bit of flexibility and dexterity as well. So abstraction in games, I think, was one of the biggest themes you guys talked about. Right, right, and I know one thing that. Brian and I discussed and I had kind of prepped you for to see if you can think of anything. And I'm curious to anyone listening, if they have ideas for this as well, is looking at an abstract game and tying it to learning outcomes for content. I don't know if there's a bridge you could cross to do that or if it's possible. I imagine it is possible. But for me, with my background in English language teaching, a lot of my game-based learning in class was very tied to language learning outcomes. So most of the time they were theme-based games. So I wonder if you have any ideas and if you're listening, feel free to reach out to us and let us know too. So there's there's one game, Dustin, that I think we're both familiar with because we went to go see their publisher booth back at PAX Unplugged last year, which is Evolution by North Star Games. And um, for those of you who haven't played Evolution before, it's very much a game about creating um, different species of animals that will then survive and thrive in this natural environment. And what the game does really well, in my opinion, is that it abstracts some of the concepts of the survival of the fittest mode in that some animals are carnivores, in which case they need to eat other animals, and some animals are herbivores, in which case they need to eat um, plants that are available in the game. Um, but it's a game that is constantly built on adapting your animals to survive the environment. And if they don't, if they don't get enough food, then those animals um, perish, they expire. 
So I think when we look at concepts, biological concepts like evolution, uh, a game like evolution does uh, that uh, and applies that concept really well in that framework. Right. And you had talked about something before we hit record here and we're kind of chatting about the conversation is the the spectrum of games falling on an abstract spectrum, spectrum, I guess. Can you share a little bit more of what you were talking about there? Yeah, so when you were having that conversation with Brian, I was talking about a spectrum of games where there's complete abstraction on one side, and then there is highly thematic on the other side. And when I talk about highly thematic games, I'm talking about games that are very much based on the theme, the narrative, the story, um, in which the structure for that game is created. So let's say on one end, on the extreme end of the spectrum for abstraction, we'll take a game like Tic-Tac-Toe. In Tic-Tac-Toe, we are both players and we are represented by two symbols, X's and O's. And the object of the game is to get three in a row of your symbol. That's it. No story, no theme, no other overarching narrative for who we are. On the other end of the spectrum, I would say for highly thematic games are games like Battlestar Galactica, the board game. For those listeners that have never seen the show or have heard about the game before, it's a game that is about um, backstabbing and intrigue and like backdoor deals. And this game, while it's a cooperative game, um, represents that show really well. And while you could make a game that has a lot of those like backstabbing negotiation elements, when this game was designed and created, it was very much based on the theme, the narrative, and the overall lore of Battlestar Galactica. That's what I would consider a highly thematic game on that end of the spectrum. Awesome. And you have just recently, I went to watch your webinar about a week ago, and you talk about some games. Do any of these games that you chatted about or any games that you've used in the past, are they abstract games or more theme-based games? What do you tend to lean towards? So during that last webinar, I covered four games that I would consider on the spectrum to be closer to abstract. So those four games were just one, Hanabi, Code Names, and also Wavelength. And I say that they tend to skew more towards the abstract version because there's no real clear roles for a lot of those games, I would say, other than Hanabi and Code Names. Specifically because in Hanabi and Codenames, if you've never played it before, Hanabi, you're playing a fireworks manufacturer who needs to cooperate with your other fireworks manufacturers to play these cards in color and number ascending order, but you cannot see your cards. So there's a little bit of theme there. Um, in Codenames, you're playing a spy master who's trying to get your teammates to guess specific words on a board based on the, the code words that, that are pre presented there. So in that case, you have a little bit of a role there. But when it comes to games like, like Wavelength or Just One, there's really no specific player role or theme in that game. I would say that they're pretty light. They're fun. They're like party games. I would put them on the um, spectrum up there with like um, with Pictionary or Telestrations in terms of just prioritizing the player experience and depending less on the specific theme of the game overall. Right, and I know... One thing kind of going back to what Brian had chatted about is he talks about looking at some abstract games for math. And one thing he looks at is the game called Project L, which I'm not familiar with the game, but he chats about it. And you can tie in, I guess, visual analysis and geometry into an abstract game. So looking at maybe even chess, I guess. You could look at probability. I don't know. It's hard for me. It's hard for me to think through that framework because my background's not in math, but thinking about those ways that we can tie in abstract games to learning outcomes, maybe math is kind of the one area where it would work. I don't know. Yeah, I think so. Um, so I own Project L. I was one of the backers for it um, from their first Kickstarter campaign. And I can tell you that it's one of probably the most satisfying and colorful and really just beautiful games I played recently. And in Project L, like we talked about before, Dustin, it's highly abstract. There's no specific role for you or the rest of your players. You're just trying to get these like basically Tetris pieces to fit into different puzzles so that you can earn more pieces so that you can do more puzzles even faster later on. Uh, I think what's really great about that game is that it prioritizes spatial reasoning. So if you are in a position where you need to fill up certain puzzle pieces on your board, you know, like, well, you need um, like a really long blue piece or an L-shaped piece or a square or like a T, 
Now, like think about those different pieces you would normally see in Tetris. So it really challenges individual players to think differently about how specific forms are created out of different uh, smaller or larger shapes. Um, so I don't know how that completely relates to something like geometry. I mean, there are there are shapes in the game, but I could see someone prioritizing the use of that game overall for, I would say, like visual or spatial reasoning. Right. I think that's 100% right. And mm-hmm. moving into now our game, I want to talk about what you think, Wavelength. Where does that fall on the spectrum? So we're going to listen to the rules of the game with Brian. And then when we come back, I want you to kind of share with us what you think Wavelength falls onto the spectrum. Let's move into the game. And I don't know if you're familiar with this game. It's called Wavelength. No, I don't know that one. Okay. So it's, it's oh man. I can think of the designer, Alex Haig, I think his name is. I can't remember the publisher, though. But it's a party game that you can play with. You can really play it with, I don't know, 100 people. Um, but really, it's it's probably best maybe eight or so. Um, but you can play it as small as with two people. So we're going to try this out. We've played it once before. And I'm going to give you a like a range. So a range might be hot to cold. And it's going to be zero is hot, 100 is cold. Well, let's do it backwards. Zero is cold, 100 is hot. And I'm going to think of a word, and I have a number, so I'm going to write down the number, and the number might be, let's say it's 80. So I want you to guess the number 80, and I'm going to give you a clue between that range again, cold, zero, hot, 100. And I might say, I don't know, um, a beach on a summer day. Okay. So you would give me a number where that falls in the range, zero or a hundred. Oh boy. Um, and this hopefully you would guess like 80. <laughs> so a Canadian playing with an American, we have different scales. <laughs> right. Because <laughs> yeah. if he's a hot day in Canada. <laughs> hot day in Canada. Oh, okay. 30. <laughs> <laughs> right. I was going to say a beach on in Florida, but I don't know how familiar you are with beaches in the U.S. Because Florida beaches or at least the water is warmer in Florida because of the Gulf. Oh boy. Um, but yeah, I, I tried to try to be more general with that clue. And Dave, before we hear the guesses from both you and Brian with our game of Wavelength, where on the spectrum would you consider Wavelength to fall? I would say that wavelength on the spectrum is much closer to the abstract end. Um, the abstract end because uh, wavelength, you don't choose to play a specific character. There's no overarching story or anything else. Uh, like I said before, I think that wavelength and just one are closer to uh, consider party games in which the really curating and supporting the player experience and making sure that it's fun and engaging is really the most important and less so than an overall theme or narrative. But I think that what Brian had to share here about Wavelength and the game you're going to play is the most interesting part. All right, let's listen into the range that I give Brian, and then you'll have an opportunity to guess a number and see who was closer. So let's listen. So it's going to be the range is zero is superhero, 100 is supervillain. Oh, okay. And I'm going to just think of a number... I'm going to write that down. Okay. So I want you to guess this number. Again, the range zero superhero, 100 supervillain. And I'm going to give you Magneto. Magneto. Zero is hero. Zero superhero, 100 supervillain. Okay. Magneto. Hmm. Dave? Hmm. Okay. So based on what I know about the X-Men, I would say Magneto is on the, if I had to give him a number between zero to 100 and zero being superhero and 100 being supervillain, because Magneto in the X-Men lore is a villain. However, I think like a lot of really great written, uh, written villains, you can empathize with his position. So I'd put him at 60 on the spectrum there. All right, let's listen to Brian's answer. 
I'm going to say 60. Ooh, that was close. And I'm going to, uh, 73 okay. was my number. Oh, so it sounds like you guys tied there. So that's tough. Yeah. <laughs> Before we wrap it up here, I want to thank our guest one last time. Thank you again, Brian, for coming on and chatting with me about abstract games and theme-based games for learning. If anyone wanted to reach out to you, where might they find you? Well, you can find me, well, my channel's on YouTube, Brains on Games. Uh, Brains on Games is the Facebook page and it's the Instagram handle and the Twitter feed is Brains on Games. Brainsongames.ca is the website. So it's a .ca website because I'm in Canada. Uh, and if anyone ever wanted to send me an email, uh, my address is brian at brainsongames.ca. Awesome. Don't mix up the I and the A with both those two. <laughs> I always have to double check. But now it fills it in for Gmail for me. So, But oh, we'll leave luckily. it in the show notes so any, they can just copy and paste it. Um, again, thank you for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Dave, thank you so much for coming on and chatting a little, about, a little bit about our conversation with Brian. If anybody wanted to reach out to you, where might they find you? Sure. Thanks for having me, Dustin. So the best place to find me is on the website, uh, universityxp.com. Uh, universityxp is also on Twitter at university underscore XP and on Facebook as universityxp. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you, Dustin. Thank you for listening to another episode of Board Game with Education. That was our first new formatted episode. I'm really excited to hear what you think. I want to know if this works well. If not, let us know. If you do like it, let us know too, because it really helps us consider things as we move forward with the show and what's working and what's not. And if you do enjoy the show, please consider leaving a review. That really helps others find the show. You can leave a review on iTunes or any other podcasting platform that you listen to the show on. As always, teach better, learn more, and play some more games. I just learned how to play Japur, which is a really cool, I think only two-player game, but it's an older, modern board game, really fun set collection, trading type of game. Check it out. It's on BoardGameArena.com. Again, this episode of Board Game with Education is sponsored by The World Game, a fun and educational geography board game. It's a super exciting and fast playing game for everyone. Highly recommend checking out this game on Kickstarter now. It comes with this really cool world map that includes different cards for each country with a flag and a bunch of facts. Really awesome educational resource. Something I highly recommend adding to your classroom collection or a great game to play at home. And again, that's the world game on Kickstarter. Thank you for listening in this week. If you like what you heard, be sure to let us know. You can find us on social media as Board Gaming with Education or BGE Games, or email us at podcast at boardgamingwitheducation.com. If you want to support our podcast, be sure to check out our support page on our website. As always, teach better, learn more, and most importantly, play more. Thank you for listening, and until next time.